Hey everyone, welcome back to this month's CNS podcast uh, with the uh, with the Red Journal Neurosurgery. Uh, today we're going to be discussing for this month's topic um, a paper recently published in the Red Journal, Clinical Pearls and Methods for Interoperative Awake Language Mapping. Joining me are our, our author for the paper, uh, Dr. Ramin Morshed, uh, along with uh, two interviewers, faculty from the United States, Dr. Simon Hamp from uh, New York Medical College and Dr. Michael Ivan from uh, University of Miami. Um, if you guys want to go ahead and introduce yourselves, along with Dr. Rafael Vega, our CS Podcast Committee co-chair. Yeah, hey, ha happy to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation. This is Simon Hamp. Um, I'm a neurosurgeon here at Westchester Medical Center um, as part of New York Medical College um, with a clinical focus on uh, brain tumor surgery. And, um, you know, this was uh, a great read and uh, I strongly endorse this, um, uh, this article for it's really, I would just say it's just an excellent distillation of the principles that go into uh, doing an awake craniotomy. And it's very hard, I think, to find something that encapsulates all of that and those nuances as well. So I think really great kudos to the authors for pulling this off and um, you know, happy to be here and discuss it. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Natasha. It's, uh, it's uh, really appreciate the invitation to join such a great group of, uh, of faculty and, and residents uh, to talk about uh, a, a passionate topic of mine. Uh, my name is Michael Ivan. I'm one of the uh, brain tumor and skullway surgeons here at the University of Miami. Also, the director of our research program and uh, have a brain tumor lab focused on, on glioma. So it's really a, an area that's uh, close to heart. And uh, and I agree with everything Simon said. This article, if, if you're going to read one article on, on awake craniotomies and the details that need to go into it, complication avoidance and the kind of everything you need to get through, especially as a resident or junior faculty, this is this is the article to read. And, and looking forward to dissecting it with you. Beautiful. And then. Uh... I'm nice to be on the other side of things, you know, for once, uh, but uh, I'm Rafael Vega, typically a moderator and host of the CNS podcast and co-chair and also director of neurosurgical oncology here at uh, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and uh, uh, co-director of the Brain Tumor Center here as well. So that being said, this is a great topic and I'm glad you chose it, uh, uh, Natesh. And um, again, you know, we, we can't stress how important this topic is for those that love doing awake craniotomies, and uh, we will be going into this in good detail, and uh, and by all means, take it away. Yeah. I just want to make one small interjection, forgot to mention earlier, um, this uh, this sort of podcast is worth 1.5 CME credits. It's available, complimentary to all CNS members on the uh, catalog online, the CNS catalog, and also it does stream on Spotify, for you, so it's easily accessible from a mobile standpoint. Uh, that said, Dr. Morshed, the floor is yours. Yeah, thanks for having me and giving me the opportunity to be on the podcast and highlight our paper. I'm one of the rising PGY6s at UCSF. Um, you know, in this paper, just to give a broad overview, uh, we review current standard methods for awake language mapping that have been developed over the years, including patient selection, anesthetic technique, and various surgical techniques. But we also tried to touch on key topics that are still sort of uh, being worked out in the field. This included a review of various language tasks that patients may undergo intraoperatively, which may not be uniformly practiced across the world. And we also highlight the idea of how different electrical stimulation task response paradigms may potentially impact patient responses intraoperatively. 
Um, a lot less attention has been given to electrostimulation parameters themselves and how they can influence patient responses. And uh, uh, so we tried to highlight these areas to readers to um, as potential future areas of investigation. Awesome, thank you, Dr. Morshek. Um, you know, I think as a good good layout of the paper itself, I do encourage all listeners to actually read this paper. The figures are, are, are actually really nice. Um, and I think uh, it serves as a great sort of a framework to understand how this is done. Um, you know, our, our interviewers, Drs. Hanf and Dr. Ivan, um, both have questions that are prepared, which we can dwell into. Dr. Ivan, should we leave with yours? Yeah, that'd be great. Um, you know, I think my first question is just um, if Ramin could just kind of take us through uh, when he gets, you know, what is what is the procedure for, for finding positive mapping? Uh, you know, UCSF is definitely in Dr. Burr been kind of leading the way with, with this idea of monopolar and then bipolar kind of transitions. But it brings a lot of question. I think this is one of the first paper that really talks about the details of, um, of how many times you need positive stimulation. Can you use the same intensity and amplitude uh, and duration, um, you know, if, if for each task at hand, or do you need to reset that? And how many times do you need to kind of confirm at each intensity. So if you could just kind of take us through a case maybe that uh, has a positive stimulated area um, cortically or subcortically. Yeah, so um, really uh, what we do once we're past the craniotomy portion, Dura's open uh, and we've set up our uh, ECOG array. What we're uh, usually starting with at least within our group is a low frequency, bipolar stimulation for cortical mapping. During an awake craniotomy, we start stimulating at an intensity of two milliamps. And we usually are checking a couple different sites. If we're not getting any uh, errors in terms of patient performance, we're, we increase the in intensity usually by one or two milliamps uh, to a maximum of six milliamps. During this time, um, our neurology team is uh, there with us in the OR and looking for um, after discharge potentials. If we do see those while we're stimulating and trying to find sort of our maximum threshold of stimulation, we then take whatever we stimulated at, for example, if it's four milliamps and we bump it down to three milliamps. And that's sort of the threshold that's used for the rest of the uh, procedure. Um, if we don't see any uh, after discharge potentials or ADPs, uh, we're really only going up to a maximum of six milliamps and we sort of limit that for the rest of the case. And I would, should say that uh, a lot of members in our group are sort of limiting their maximum threshold to now four milliamps because they haven't really found that going higher than, higher than that really increases the rate of um, positive site detection. If anything, it just increases the risk of intraoperative uh, seizure events. Um, now, uh, that's bipolar cortical stimulation. I think uh, a lot of uh, literature has now been published on high frequency monopolar stimulation with 500 Hertz usually being used in terms of frequency. Uh, we do have many members of our uh, surgical group here that have started doing monopolar cortical stimulation uh, and sort of use that in uh, instead of bipolar stimulation. And it seems to be in some ways uh, surgeon preference at this point in time. Uh, and I think there's um, 
you know, benefits to using it. There's a thought that it's maybe associated with less risk of intraoperative seizures. Although uh, others feel that really what you're trying to do is localize function to a particular cortical region. And so that's where bipolar stimulation really comes into play because really between the tips of those two electrodes is what you're looking for. Is there function there or not? Um, now, uh, to get into subcortical mapping, I think it's a little bit different. Um, monopolar stimulation is uh, in some ways very helpful for subcortical mapping. It's sort of like taking a flashlight and looking for these subcortical pathways. Uh, we've done some work recently um, uh, looking at uh, triple motor uh, mapping um, and uh, outcomes related to using uh, that method. And as part of that, we showed that stimulation intensity of monopolar subcortical mapping correlates with distance, uh, almost a one-to-one -one ratio. And so if you're getting positive sites, let's say start stimulating at 20 milliamps, if you think you're getting close to some important subcortical tracts, uh, simulating at 20 milliamps and you get a positive response, well, you know that that tract is going to be within uh, about 20 millimeters of your probe. And uh, so in that way, it's, it's very helpful for sort of, you know, uh, getting a distance, um, an idea of distance from these tracks. Bipolar um, subcortical stimulation can also be used, uh, and many, uh, many of our group still use that for subcortical mapping. Uh, there's some concern that you may be missing the identification of these subcortical sites because you're really not picking them up and, unless they're between those two uh, electrodes at the end of the bipolar. Um, and, uh, you know, there's some concern if you're missing these tracks, then you could uh, potentially transect them without realizing it. And so I would say the majority of our group, if not everyone, is, is relying on monopolar subcortical stimulation uh, with sometimes supplementing with bipolar subcortical stimulation. You know, I wanted to ask something on that and open it up to the group, you know, since we, there's all different recipes uh, for how people do things. And so uh, for Dr. Hanf and Dr. Ivan, you know, do you guys also have this limit of six milliamps for bipolar, you know, um, uh, cortical stim for uh, awake speech? And then if you go to the depths and start doing subcortical for speech mapping, you know, do you change it up with bipolar or go monopolar as well? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I personally have gone above six milliamps, and that's kind of part of what my first question was here, because I've really leaned on the after discharges and kind of followed that approach where wherever you're triggering the after discharge potentials, then I'm coming a milliamp below that. And I think that's probably just a little bit of my experience and kind of the, the neurophysiology group that I've had over the years and just probably feeling that I was more likely to kind of get a, a, the arrest or get the kind of elicit the kind of response or lack thereof um, that would help guide, you know, the resection. Um, and so, yeah, I, I kind of push it and I've not really found that I've had, you know, intraoperative seizures at those levels above six. Um, but, you know, we're talking about getting into the, maybe the nine, 10 range. I'm rarely beyond, uh, beyond that. And that, that's why I was going to ask for mean, the question, but he really just answered it here, which is, of course, in the paper as well, that the, that the six milliamps appears to be a hard cutoff 
um, for, for, for them, the UCSF group. And you'd be interested to hear what Mike, Mike's doing as well. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I, don't, I can't recall a time that I've ever gone above six milliamps for stimulation. I feel like if, if, if that's negative, then it's, it's I, I trust that we're in a negative area. Um, as far as switching to monopolar and then bipolar, I, I, I've been using both. And um, I, I think it's just this, this question of consistency of the, of the positive stimulation and the intensity that you're getting the positive stimulation is something that's very interesting to me. And that was kind of brought up in the paper. Like if you're, you know, if you're moving from face motor to speech to something else, can you, can you reliably say that if you're positive at three milliamps for face motor, is it going to be the same three milliamps for, for speech? And can you just use that consistently throughout everything? Or if you're mapping in English and then you switch to mapping in Spanish, can you reliably can you use the same milliamps or should you, should you go back and kind of go through that gradient again and start from two and then the three and kind of remap each task. Obviously that takes a lot of time and you have to have a cooperative patient, but um, in, in, in each case, we probably do it a little bit differently, but that's what I've been kind of trying to understand a little bit more. And you guys really start to highlight that a little bit in this paper as well. Um, and then also the, the, you know, how consistent are you with doing the two out of three to consider it a positive, a positive um, stimulation site versus just once you get that positive stimulation site, do you always do a two out of three or do you just kind of then say, okay, we know that that's, you know, uh, how many times do you have to check each site after you, the first site you kind of confirm what's a positive and what's a negative? Yeah, I think these are really good points that are being brought up. Um, you know, in terms of what we, uh, the sort of simulation, uh, I guess, intensity that we're using, it, it ends up usually being a set intensity for the rest of the operation. So, uh, you know, we're, I guess this paper is focused more so just on language awake mapping cases, um, but say we're switching between different language tasks, such as picture naming, sentence generation, et cetera. We're not really changing the um, uh, stimulation intensity between tasks, or uh, say you have a tumor that expand, uh, or expands multiple um, cortical lobes, we're not changing necessarily the intensity from one lobe to another. And, uh, you know, I think there's more work that needs to be done to explore that question of, do you need to be changing the stimulation intensity based off task? Um, uh, these are all really good questions that I think require a little bit more investigation. Um, in terms of the answering the question about, um, uh, the sort of percent uh, errors that really dictate a positive side, I would say that we are pretty, you know, reliably, reliably uh, or relying on um, two out of three incorrect responses as being a positive site. And, um, you know, if there's a question about uh, whether the patient did truly make an error or not, we'll often go back and stimulate that site more to see if, uh, if if we get a higher percentage of errors. Um, and for each different language test that we're doing, uh, we're stimulating each site th at least three times. And so I think this you know, brings up another sort of limitation with intraoperative language mapping. Um, if you're gonna, if, especially if you have a wide exposure or a large tumor and you're stimulating um, 
each site three times and you're testing maybe four or five different language tests, you can see how that time really adds up in the operating room and may lead to things like patient fatigue, which could then lead to poor response over time. Um, and so, you know, I think um, surgeons need to be uh, strategic in some ways about picking what language tests uh, they're gonna use intraoperatively. Um, you know, in the paper, we talk about different language tests that can be used based off of cortical lobe, which I think is a helpful guide. Um, but at the end of the day, I think if, uh, you know, asking our group of surgeons here, if they had to pick one or two tasks that they would use, especially in cases like difficult patient cases, they would usually rely on picture naming and potentially sentence uh, generation, because you seem to get the most bang for your buck in terms of uh, identifying uh, language errors. Thank you. Absolutely. You know, Dr. Ivan raised a pretty interesting point as well, just regarding, you know, thresholds and different, even with choosing between different languages, patients is multilingual. Um, I think Dr. Ivan also had a couple other questions, uh, unless we want to go back and forth between Dr. Hanf and Dr. Ivan. Dr. Hanf wants to ask a question. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to jump in on my second, because it's just really, a. I think it segues nicely from what um, Ramin was just saying um, in terms of strategizing how you go through these tasks, because, you know, I'll, you know, I'll be transparent. I, I do not get through this number of tasks per site in my typical awake. Um, it's a lot. I, I'm concerned about patient fatigue. I'm, I'm concerned about, you know, causing a seizure, but more so the fatigue than anything especially as a majority of patients that I'm bringing in for these cases, as I'm sure is the case with you guys too, are, you know, they're impacted already. I rarely have someone who's perfect going into these operations. So I tend to be a little bit choosy. I lean on the neuropsychologist or the speech therapist, whoever we have involved on the other side here. But, um, you know, Ramin, for you, and, and of course, you know, for Dr. Zivin, Dr. Vega, Dr. Morshed all together, just what, how are you prioritizing the tasks? I mean, is it kind of a, is picture naming just kind of the absolute go-to? You start with that kind of regardless of site. Are you getting through all of these or are you just kind of going with the flow, so to speak, seeing how the patient's participating, depending maybe on how big the tumor is? You know, what are the factors that kind of dictate how many of these tasks you're trying to complete? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, you know, I, in some ways, the limitation sometimes is based off of preoperative task performance. And so, uh, as you know, um, the uh, patients uh, undergo pretty extensive preoperative language testing involving actually all these different uh, tasks that we outlined in the paper. And uh, for many patients, they actually don't meet the threshold for their, I guess I should say their threshold, baseline error threshold is too high to reliably test intraoperatively. And so you can imagine, and this is not consistent between language tests. So you can imagine, um, you know, maybe a patient gets 50% right on, um, you know, sentence generation, but uh, picture naming, they get 90%. Well, we can't really rely on sentence generation, therefore, in the OR, but we'll rely on uh, picture naming. Uh, and so sometimes the limit, limitation in terms of what tasks are being used are preoperative uh, performance. Um, the, you know, I would say that in an ideal world, 
world uh, where we have um, uh, a patient with perfect language, but maybe it's at risk intraoperatively. And so we're testing uh, multi with multiple tasks. I say, you know, just from my experience as a resident, um, it's they're usually trying to do at least three to five tasks. And it is somewhat guided by uh patient fatigue if we're and you know the surgeons and anesthesiologists are very cognizant of this and so if they're seeing that the patient's performance is sort of declining over or over time then they may um, stop language mapping at that point especially if they have uh, a reliable negative map for entry uh, to the tumor that's a great answer appreciate that because the only other thing I wanted to add to that is that, you know, for me, in my experience, I guess I've been, a, maybe you can say a little bit more fortunate. I've had a lot of patients that have very large tumors in this language region that don't have any perioperative deficit. And obviously they want to keep it. So if I have like a professional singer or somebody that, you know, this really is important, uh, obviously we try the best that we can, you know, to um, you know, I have a lot of <laughs> negative language mapping in some of these cases. And at the end of the day, you know, that fatigue component, uh, it, it does come into play. And I do give people, um, you can say like a rest, if you will, uh, when you're working in a certain region. And then I do try to wake them up if I can in, in areas that you're a little bit more concerned. And then we try to see again, you know, uh, how long we can go. But I like the idea of essentially trying to, you know, map it all out find your borders even all the way down into the depth and then have you know have them awake as much as you can to do at least three different tasks at least for me is, is kind of how i have it you know not everybody can do everything based on you know if you have a deficit beforehand but if they're all intact i do really hard you know with how with at least what some of the goals are you know we kind of map it out beforehand and say these are the things that you absolutely want uh, it becomes a little tricky when it gets long right yeah, I think we that's an interesting a... point that Dr. Yeah. Vega and Dr. Hanf goes about this fatigue. And that's something I think that I've changed a little bit too in my practice. I used to try to do the conservative side of the tumor early and save the hard part for the end. That's maybe that's the skull base in me of kind of what I, way I think. But now the more that I've had experience with fatigue and trying to map out multiple tasks, the idea of, of like you, Dr. Vega just said and, and Dr. Hanf alluded to, the idea of tackling kind of this area where you really need the best exam, the best task mapping to kind of tackle that up front and then save the other areas that maybe it's not as important as the patient fatigues. Uh, uh, Ramin, have you, have you found that also kind of in your experience thus far? That... Yeah, I think, um, you know, it, it, there's a lot of nuances to this and uh, in terms of, um, you know, tumor size. Sometimes you just need to debulk the easy part of the tumor to get to the hard part. Um, but, you know, I think that uh, especially um, when you're getting into the depths of the tumor and doing subcortical mapping, another thing we haven't talked about is sort of the anesthetic technique that's used. Sometimes patient uh, uh, surgeons rely on a conscious, conscious sedation mode of doing things. I think our method is more sort of the asleep, awake asleep method where we're using uh, remifentanil and propofol. And uh, so you can imagine you know, we're awake doing cortical mapping, put the patient maybe in a twilight sleep, wake them up again. And so, uh, you know, I think it, it varies to answer your question. I think it varies from surgeon to surgeon about whether they try and tackle the most difficult part of the tumor first or not. Um, 
I don't think there's a standard way of doing it. So I just want to remind everyone, we're probably running for the last few minutes here. Maybe we can squeeze in one more question, uh, perhaps from Dr. Ivan or Dr. Hamp. I try to keep these under 30 minutes. Yeah, yeah, sure. Mine's kind of an interesting question. The last one is just really the going what the future goes. You know, as we learn more about connectomics with brain tumors and learn about more about what these networks are doing and how they're they're very complicated and repetitive and, and whatnot. And we're learning um, you know, SLF, ILF, and, and that they're really integrated in, in, in many functions. How do you see kind of this ability for interoperative mapping changing in the future to kind of look at many other functions that we really didn't have to worry about. You know, when I was a resident, it was mostly just speech and motor. And now we're starting to talk about memory and calculation and, you know, and, and conversation and higher function. So where do you see that going in the future? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think there's a couple areas um, uh, that may uh, expand in the future. I know Dr. Defoe was on the podcast not uh, very recently talking about a la carte um, uh, intraoperative testing. I think just broadly, more complex cognitive testing may be involved intraoperatively, sort of tailored to what you know patients want to get out of surgery or their preoperative deficits. And I think this includes both preoperative cognitive testing and in, in detail, uh, intraoperative quick cognitive tests that may uh, identify uh, certain pathways that preserve certain cognitive functions uh, that are important to patients, uh, and then post-operative cognitive rehab to, to make sure those uh, 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 functions are maintained or you know, improve over time. So I think this is something where maybe in the future, we're not just doing language, simple language motor mapping. We're going to be uh, mapping, as you said, maybe attention, memory, uh, these sort of more nuanced uh, uh, functions that are important to patients and affect their day-to-day -day lives. I think the um, another area is uh, um, really looking at sort of how these networks are changing over time. And we at UCSF, we do a lot of reoperations at the time of tumor recurrence. And our group and other groups have demonstrated that there's functional plasticity uh, in patients with glioma. And so, you know, just because they had a prior positive site overlying a tumor before, when you come back for a redo craniotomy, that may not necessarily be the case, that that same site may be negative. And so understanding the timing of functional reorganization, how that occurs, where the function migrates to, and um, better, better methods to detect this preoperatively are still under investigation. And I think that may guide um, you know, selecting patients uh, appropriately for um, cortical and subcortical awake mapping. Thank you. Um, I just want to thank all of our moder uh, interviewees or interviewers and um, Dr. Vega, of course, and CNS, and of course, Christy Angelos for organizing all of this. Um, if we're done here with questions, we are approaching the 30 minute mark. Uh, we can include this podcast. I just want to remind our listeners that this is worth 1.5 CME credits. It is available to all members complimentary on the CNS catalog online and also streaming on Spotify. So do share uh, on social media and Spotify with uh, to all your friends. <laughs> Thanks, everyone.